listening to Real Talk SLP with your host, Felice Clark, the Deviling Speechy. This is a show to help speech pathologists navigate the SLP world with real life stories to celebrate therapy successes and how to persevere when failure comes knocking on your door. Hey, SLPs, this is Felice Clark, the Dabbling Speechy, with episode number 11 of the Real Talk SLP podcast show. Today, we're going to be talking about um, something that I feel like I'm always learning and growing in, and that is how to support our students who also have a sensory processing disorder. And, you know, since I've been doing a lot more push in support and supporting students that are K1, 1, 2 in the mod sphere classrooms that also have autism. I'm seeing a lot more sensory movement, if you shall say, and it's really hard to navigate because it's hard to know is the child having a behavior? Are they refusing me? Are they, you know, are they showing sensory signs. It's so hard and difficult. I don't know about you guys, but it's something that I, I I can be successful with one student and then another student, I feel like I don't even know what I'm doing. And thank goodness for the internet and podcasts and people on our teams like occupational therapists that can help guide us with how to help students that are exhibiting sensory processing issues. So I thought it would be good. First off, let me just say, it has been a crazy, crazy month. We're now in April and it's still crazy. And I've been, I'm sure I I can't even talk about it because I'm sure we're all like, yeah, we're all, we're, we're either in a daze or we're, you know, just in a really weird place with the school closures. And it's been hard to hear and listen and read that a lot of SLPs are just being thrown into teletherapy and asked to do the same job, but we're not in a same <laughs> work environment. So, and they have kids at home, or even if you don't have kids at home, this is stressful. And I just, I just hope that you guys are finding small ways to get through each day. And I've been thinking about you. And if you follow me on social media, especially Instagram, I try to keep it real, help you out, but also keep it a little bit funny and light to just, just give us a laugh. Cause I know for myself, that's how I get through hard times is just remembering to laugh a little bit and find a little joy. So I hope you, you, Um, If you follow me, just know that that's my heart. It's not to make light of this situation. I've been heartbroken and just, oh, it's been hard. So I thought I would, you know, since I have all this time on my hands now um, with the hubby at home, because his hair salon is shut down for a while because we're in California, I thought I would continue on with some of our uh, podcast episodes because we got some time. And I'm sure you're all taking daily walks now. Maybe some of you taking like two or three daily walks just to make it through the day. Um, And you can listen to this podcast while you're on a walk. And I just want to tell you, I'm totally like rambling, but um, you guys are rock stars. You're doing a great job. Hang in there. Just remember, you are an excellent SLP. And during these times, good enough will do, right? 
So just don't forget that when you start to get real stressed out about everything, that we're in a very unique situation in time and that good enough will do and that your well-being and your family's well-being is very important too. So I'm really excited uh, to have my friend Allison on the podcast. She is Allison Fors. If you want to look for her on social media, she is from California. She moved back to California and she lives really close to me. And ironically, we are not hanging out while we're recording this because social distancing friends, but she is just happy to be home in her state where she grew up and be around family. And she has this really cute two-year-old and she's pregnant and going to have a little baby girl in May. So I've been praying for her that everything's going to go well. Um, and she has worked in schools with K to 12th grade, tw- grade and has also worked in a private practice. She has primarily worked with the diagnoses of autism, Down syndrome, developmental delays, and has a love for early intervention and language therapy. She's always sharing really practical ways that you can work on play activities for early intervention. Um, And so if you haven't started following her, please go do that. And she's going to be sharing all about sensory processing disorders with us today. So before we get into that part of the podcast episode, I just wanted to let you know the sponsor for today's podcast is the Marshala Guide. If you have not heard of it, go Google it, Google it, or you can, um, I will put in the the show notes, a link to the the Marshala Guide. I can't even, that's a... That's a tongue twister. Um, (laughs) But for those SLPs out there that have students on their caseloads with speech sound disorders and articulation deficits, the Marshala Guide is jam-packed. It's jam-packed with information and knowledge about how to get children to produce certain sounds and what to do if you're struggling to get an elicitation of a certain sound or if a child is mumbling, like there's a chapter all about mumbling. So for me personally, I got an art, oh my gosh, I can't even talk. For me personally, this year, I got a student with apraxia on my caseload, and this Marshala guide came at the right time when I just needed something something to go to when I was struggling after a therapy session or trying to come up with a plan with how to proceed next in with what the student was able to do. So having this guide be available. It's very, very big. So it's not one of those books that you're necessarily going to just read, you know, on your lunch break or read for leisure. It is a guide to help you when you're getting for a specific area of need. So, and if you don't know Pam Marshall, I was fortunate um, to be able to see her live when she was alive and she was an awesome speaker. And right now, Her whole store of her resources, which are very good and comprehensive, are 20% off if you spend over $20. So right now, you can get the Pam Marshala Guide, the Marshala Guide, for 20% off, and then you can get an additional 5% off with my code, DabblingSpeechy. So when you go to the checkout, you are going to put in the code, DabblingSpeechy, and you will get an additional 5% off, which would make a 25% off savings. With, with the size of this resource, that is a really great deal. So head on over there and check it out. So let's move into our interview with Allison. I think you're going to love it. 
All right. We are headed over to talk with Allison. I know you're going to enjoy this podcast episode. So, hey, Allison, I'm so glad to have you on my show. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I had told everyone prior to the intro of this that we actually live really close to each other, but because of social distancing, we are (laughs) recording this um, in in our own home. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> um, Same distance away. Yes, we are more than six feet away. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about sensory processing disorders, and you have a really awesome blog post that you wrote on it, and it just was really helpful for me as I've been working with students with autism that are just moving all the time or needing, you know, I don't know if they're having behaviors or if they're having a sensory issue. And so it was a really helpful blog post. So I wanted to have you on the show. And I think we should just dive in and just if you want to talk about what a sensory processing disorder is, and then what populations it impacts the most, that would be a great place to start with the conversation. Yeah, I think this is a great topic, because it's something we all come across working in this field, but it's not something we really are taught like learn about. Um, So sensory processing is how we filter and respond to all the sensory information we're getting throughout the day. And sensory processing disorder is when the brain's having difficulty just understanding and responding to that information. Uh, So children with sensory processing disorder are just, they have a hard time organizing and interpreting that data they're getting efficiently, which impacts their development, their behavior, their attention span, their ability to succeed in school sometimes. Um, And a lot of these kids, like we do see a lot of these kids in speech. It's sensory processing disorder is really common in those diagnosed with autism. Uh, Research shows 78% of children with autism present with sensory difficulties, which is a really high number. Uh, So it's, it's pretty critical that we understand what sensory processing disorder is and how we can help these kids succeed in speech therapy. Um, Because otherwise, they're having a hard time being able to sit in their chair and attend a task uh, and make gains with their goals. Um, So yeah, and, and also thinking about populations that affects the most. I've worked in both schools and private practice. And I don't really, like in schools, I don't think I really came across sensory needs that much. But when I switched to private practice, it was mostly like early intervention, mostly autism spectrum disorder. And I think all of my kids needed something from me sensory-wise to help them succeed in our sessions. So I think it really depends on your setting that you're in, how much you're going to be seeing this. Yeah, and I've noticed over the last four years, because I've been serving mild, mod, and mod severe um, self-contained classrooms that have, um, like right now I have two autism classrooms, so I see it a lot um, right now, where it is like, it's so tricky, because one minute they could be like, getting out of their chair and trying to move all around, and it could be because they don't want to do the activity, but it could also be because they are not regulated to sit or they haven't been able to look at the book because their body just is not um, ready yet. Yeah, if, they you can't know, focus. Has, 
Yeah. So it's, and all my kids are different. So I think that's why it's so hard. Um, because they all have different sensory needs too. So you're just, it's just like, you can be a bit overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Every kid is so different. I remember thinking that initially, like I have this one kid who won't sit still or pay attention. And this other kid who like, all he does is just sit there. Nothing like he's not reacting to anything. It's like their problems are the complete opposite, but they're both sensory based. So it's like, yes. it's like, how do I, how, how do I help these kids that are demonstrating opposite behaviors? You know, it's, it's right. It's just a spectrum and it's, it can really present with like anything, which makes it, makes it hard. Right. Totally. I, that, I mean, at least that's what our team sees. And then, you know, <clears throat> we try to work with our OT when we can, but um, I have some friends that like to touch everything and put things in their mouths and, uh, and then like touch you a lot. And it's like back up <laughs> so, yeah. and, and they're big now. They're not like two year olds, um, anymore, you know, they're not that size. So it's like, I need space. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so if you want to share a little bit of your experience working with children with sensory processing disorders, like if you have any real life stories or examples, just to give some SLPs an idea of what it w might look like in a session, um, or maybe they can identify with some of the examples and go, oh my goodness, that's a kid on my caseload. That'd be really helpful. Yeah. I mean, this is something I really struggled with when I switched from schools to private practice because that's when I started experiencing it and seeing it a lot. Um, and I had like, I, to be honest, like I had no idea what was going on. Like, like we talked about some of my kids were bouncing off the walls and couldn't sit in the chair and the other, like others were just completely overwhelmed by being in a clinic, being around people, walking to my room um, just couldn't, like you could tell with their bodies, they just like couldn't handle everything going on in the room. Um, so yeah, initially I think, and I think a lot of people do this is they take these kids and they think that they're being behavioral or they think they're having tantrums, um, for attention or whatever it is, but really it's sensory needs, really they're meltdowns, um, opposed to tantrums. So fortunately, the clinic I was working at had OT and PT, and a lot of my kids would also get OT, and some of them would also get PT. Um, so it was great to be able to talk to the occupational therapist and be like, hey, what is going on? <laughs> like, what are you working on in your session? Because they, you know, they were seeing the same kid. Like, what, what are you working on? What can I do in my little speech room? They won't sit in a chair or, you know, what, whatever it was. So I was able to learn a ton from watching them in their sessions um, and from talking to them. Um, and the, the thing I learned is there's two main types of sensory processing disorder. It's a little more complicated than that, but you can kind of break them up into two main types. And really it's a spectrum. So most kids are a mix between the two, which again makes it complicated and kind of hard <laughs> to pinpoint at times. Um, so there's hypersensitive and hyposensitive. So hypersensitive kids are those ones that are just like bouncing off the walls and they're, they're runners, they're escapers, um, like the biters, uh, the, those kids, their sensory system, uh, a little stimulation just overloads it. So mm -hmm. 
the, like the climbers. Yes. Yeah. The ones that you're like, turn around and you're like, wait, get Where it. did they go? <laughs> They're on the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other one, hyposensitive, is they're under-responsive to stimulation. So they need a ton of stimulation to just respond. So they seem lethargic. They're those kids that, like, are slumped in their chair. Like, they can't seem to, like, stay in a chair because they just fall out. Or, um, yeah, they they seem clumsy. Or they're really disinterested in activities. Like, you're pulling out your, like, best toys most exciting toys that kids love and they just could care less. So those kids are the hyposensitive ones. Um, and you said the under response, like they're, un- they need input to be at a good place to work. Yeah. Like, like to bring them up to baseline, like they need a ton of sensory stimulation from you. Um, I know. I'm wondering, I have a couple of kids on my caseload and I'm, they do they pick a lot of like, they, look at things and then like they're always trying to grab things and put things in their mouth or would that be like a over responsive person? That's probably under responsive just cause they're trying to seek out sensory experiences. Um, okay. like they're trying to, yeah. Like yeah, figure things out couple, in their environment. Okay. Cause that, yeah, a couple of my kids are like that where they're really lethargic. You can't tell if they're liking the activity and it makes you feel like this not so great therapist. Yeah. Like everybody else likes me. <laughs> no. They're like, I don't and, love this toy. What's, what's the problem? <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay. So we have over-responsive. They're always, they're too, they have too much sensory process, too many things coming at them at once. And so they're like letting that out by running away or lashing out or screaming. If, if Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, if you think about it, like if you're in a really rich sensory environment, like if you go to a concert, you know how you just like sometimes can get overwhelmed, like all the lights and the sound and the smells and mm-hmm. like you're, you need to go home and like decompress after a concert, right? Like these kids are living like that every day because their their body's not filtering out like that excess noise in the background or you know what whatever it is that's happening their brain isn't able to really compute that properly so they're just like all the time experiencing this kind of like higher level of anxiety and stress just being just like living their normal life you know right so that's why yeah. with those kids it's important <laughs> Like those kids in my sessions, I try to just keep it real chill. Like if we need to dim the lights or um, even like make my therapy room smaller, like give them less space to work with. Mm-hmm. We do like rocking or white noise or this is where weighted vests come in handy or blankets. Um, just helping their body chill out. So for the over responsive types, you were just saying like, Keeping it chill, lowering the um, light or making the space smaller. Sometimes I've done that where I've enclosed a space like this is our little space we're working to kind of block out even movement from other kids if I'm in the class. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what was I going to say? Oh, you, um, I was going to ask, like, what other things do you do you create like a schedule of calming activities before you get to the therapy activity or what do you do to help get them in a place to work before, you know, going into your therapy activities? Yeah. So, um, what I like to do, which I, this like totally depends on 
where you work and what you have available to you. When I was working in, in the private clinic, there was an OT gym, which was awesome because kids like we could go on the swing um, or ju- go jump on the trampoline or, you know, do the ball pit or whatever we wanted to do to help them regulate a little bit um, and then move to the therapy room to have them do more tabletop activities. So I, I would try to front load like all those activities in the beginning. And then if we needed to continue them throughout the rest of the session in, in the room, in the speech therapy room. Um, so that's one thing I would do. Also, visual schedules are always a good idea. And even for these kids who are minimally verbal and might not understand a full visual schedule, use like a first then one. So first, like we're going to do this book, like you'd have the picture of the book. And then we get to do, you know, whatever exciting activity you like. So even just a simple like first then um, helps them to like internalize what's going to happen. I think that's also a big thing with sensory processing disorder is just uh, like expectations. Like they, they want to know what's going to happen. And if yeah, they're able to yeah. understand that. So some of my kids, it's like we would do the same activity every single time to start off the session. Like so they knew, okay, we're walking to the room and we're going to do this activity. And that helps them. That helps them be able to know what's going to happen and be able to cooperate instead of it being more open-ended. Yeah, that's a good, I'm always about visuals. And then I think it also, I mean, it would help me too. Like first I'm supposed to stand and then I get to go, you know, and then I'm sitting in my chair or telling their body, like, then I have to sit for five minutes and then I know I get to get up. So it's like letting their Mm -hmm. body get prepped for what's, what it has to do too. Cause it's probably a lot of work for them to sit in a chair. Yeah, especially the little ones. And you can always increase it because you have a kid who you start seeing and they can't sit in the chair and attend for an activity for 30 seconds. Okay, that's our starting point. Like, let's aim for 30 seconds and then, like, slowly increase that. So, I mean, yeah, I mean like, sense. yeah, it's just like setting, meeting them where they are and then slowly increasing those expectations. Okay, so what I heard about the over responsive types is that we need to decrease stimulation, have a routine for getting them prepped for their session, um, to be able to do some tabletop work and then really taking a step back and looking to see like if they're not really able to attend for five minutes, like with reading a book that maybe we just aim for looking at the pictures for 30 seconds and then take a break and, or do a couple pages. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Or like pick a book, like, like head to toe that movement book, like they don't even have to sit in the chair for that. Like, we're going to read this book, but you're standing up, you can jump, like, yeah, finding creative ways to incorporate that stuff. Yeah. Do you have any other books that you like that create movement? So you said head to toe. I think that's by Eric Carl. Yeah, it's by Eric Carl. Which other ones? Um, Oh, I like we're going on a bear hunt. Yeah, bear hunt. They can like march in place and Yeah. Okay. So any books? Yeah. I like movement activities. I know sometimes even with this kind of crew, sensory bins are not even available because they cannot handle it. (laughs) These are the kids where you're like, we're not, we're going to just, um, 
maybe we're going to touch the beans one time and then put it away. If I'm really <laughs> wanting to try to do that, I won't even do beans. I'll, we'll be like, we'll do cotton balls. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't okay. typically do sensory bins with these kids and I typically yeah. stay away from any toys that are like have unexpected or loud movements. So like pop-up pirate, like I won't use or anything scented, scented Play-Doh, scented markers. I don't really use with these kids just because they don't need any extra stimulation. Or they're just going to smell it when you're trying to actually get them to do like the activity or eat it. Yeah. yeah. These are the, yeah, those are the tough ones. Something that I've done in the school setting, if you don't have an OT um, room at your site, I've taken them out on the playground and just followed a routine of like they have to go down the slide three times. So they've had to climb up the stairs and and then we walk and then I will – do, I don't know if your OTs talked about it, but like doing heavy work. So I would load up a backpack and have him walk to the speech room with the, um, with the backpack, yeah. with the backpack on yeah, that has my books in it. System. And then I had, him. yeah. So I just kind of created that routine. And this was like months of me just like going, I don't know what to do and having to just try things out and slowly, but surely I did see some improvements in our sessions, but it was a lot of work and it yeah. didn't happen overnight. It's a lot of trial and error sometimes. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about um, the under responsive types and what we can do to make our therapy sessions more productive with these kind of friends. Yeah. So these ones, you're just like trying to create all these sensory experiences. <laughs> and these are the ones that I really like at the beginning of the session, like jumping on the trampoline, if that's an option. Um, One that's easier if you're in a small space or a school or like not in a clinic is a big exercise ball because that's a little easier to like store somewhere, Um, but you can sit them on it and bounce them. Um, If you have like a crash pad, you can have them like fall off, things like that. Um, And you can use sensory bins with these kids because they're probably not going to make a massive mess from it. (laughs) They're not going to like destroy it in two seconds. Um, (laughs) So sensory sensory bins are good with these kids. And like I said, I like to at the beginning of the session, like help them to regulate. And then we try for the tabletop activities. The ones that are really hard to engage though, we'll do like a big movement activity and then like sit and try something. Um, but if the goals you're working on, like a lot of the kids that I was working with, they're like three years old, autism spectrum disorder, um, minimally verbal. Like we're just getting them to work, like make simple requests. And that's really easy to incorporate into like these types of activities. Like you don't necessarily need to do tabletop activities, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you do want them to learn to be able to sit in a chair and attend for a task. Um, yeah. But that's not school, necessarily yeah. like the main focus. Like if they're going to have a hard time that session, you know, I mean, that is a goal we're working on is being able to sit and attend. But <laughs> it really depends on the kid, like how much you're going to be pushing tabletop activities, I think. Um, we really work on, like we call it student ready. We're trying to get them to be ready because we want them to go into the gen ed classroom if they can, mm-hmm. for a, even if it's only for a little bit of time. So if they can't sit on the carpet or they can't sit in their chair, um, the teachers aren't going to be as open to having them in their classrooms or the, you know, or if we don't have enough aids, 
the, if the student's not independent in those those sitting skills and listening skills, it is harder to find places to let them be mainstreamed. Yeah. So it's important. So that's like a huge goal for those kids is to be able to sit and attend. Yeah. yeah. I like the exercise ball idea. I'm yeah. trying to think. We don't have swings at our school. Oh, bummer. Uh, I mean, we have <laughs> swings in the OT room, but yeah. sometimes getting there is it's, like, it's a different story. <laughs> it's like a walk. Yeah. It's an adventure. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I like the exercise ball thing. And then I know those, I don't even know what they're called. They're like, um, a, um, they're a seat cushion with weird prickly things on it. Yeah. I don't even know what they're called. Yeah. But I've used those before. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of friends where I don't even know if they like to jump on the trampoline or do anything like that. And, but I could, um, I was in the classroom when the teacher had set up the swing and she said, and I mean, and I saw like all the kids were happy. They were taking turns, they were swinging together. Um, but she said, she's not able to always bring it out because certain students, it creates a massive behavior because they just want to be on it the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So like that was a bummer to me because I I saw a lot of the kids that need the um more input. They were really into it. Um but she she does it when she can. But so is that like the know. OT and the OT? No, she has the teacher has um a hook in her room and it's one of the it's like a square swing. So two or three kids can sit on it and then okay. they can just swing it back and forth. We do have an OT room. Um and I'm pretty sure she has something like that. But the kids, you know, the teacher would have to walk them all over to do like OT time if she wanted to do class OT, but she has a swing in her room and yeah. um it was cool to see, but in the real world, sometimes in the classrooms, it's like, if you have behaviors and different things you're dealing with, it can inhibit doing some of these suggestions. Um, yeah. When you have a bunch of kids, it's a different story rather than being one-on-one mm-hmm. or in a smaller, smaller group. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's one of the roadblocks in the school setting, but, um, sure. so if you, uh, are an SLP and you suspect that one of your students on your caseload has a sensory processing disorder, what do you recommend some steps that they take to help these children get some support in this area? I mean, the first thing I would do is try to get them an OT evaluation. Um, Talk to the OT uh, about this kid and see what they think and if they need an eval. Um, Some of them might already be getting... OT. And in that case, that's good. And you should talk to the OT about what they're doing, get advice from them, uh, get suggestions on how to help them regulate in your sessions because they're going to know best versus you trial and erring, like (laughs) different activities. Um, Because I mean, that always happens where you like try something and it's an epic fail. You're like, okay, that was too much stimulation (laughs) or whatever. We're Um, like doing the working for chart in every session. You're like, this isn't working. Um. (laughs) Have those sessions where it's like, okay, that was not good. Um, But yeah, I would just, I would, hopefully you have like an OT you can talk to at your school site or, um, or yeah, talk to the parents. I think maybe they should get an OT evaluation. I don't, yeah, it kind of depends on the setting you're in, what, what that's going to look like if there's an OT there or not. Um, 
But even if you suspect something, you can always incorporate these ideas we've talked about because honestly, a lot of these ideas work well for most kids, even if they're not experiencing these extreme sensory needs that are impacting their ability um, to function in their daily lives and, and succeed in school. Like movement activities are always good. <laughs> you know, like, right. I know. like yeah, it works for everyone. Kid. So feel free to try it out. Be like this kid, you know, seems a little like he's bouncing off the walls. Like, let's try this. Um, so I, th- I think it's always worth a shot to just have like a couple things in your back pocket that you can try with kids in any ways. Yeah. Um, so I think it's always worth giving it a whirl and, and, and adding on to that, we, I mean, we're talking about sensory needs. We all have sensory needs. Like even, <laughs> you know, like we all have our like little ticks that we do, or if we're focusing, we might fidget. Um, plenty of adults have weighted blankets that they sleep with because it's calming. So we all have our little sensory things that we all cope with in different right. ways. So you, you might see a kid and be like, oh, what's going on here? And they might not necessarily have a full-on sensory processing disorder, but you can still help them regulate in some way. Yeah, I think we all have sensory needs, and it's just a good reminder that um, that our students do too. So before we end this episode, I would love it if you could just run through some different behaviors that SLPs may be seeing in their students and thinking that it is a behavior of like non-compliance or not wanting to do the activity when in reality it could be, you know, a red flag for a sensory processing need. And, and then that way they can, you know, it'll help us to navigate when we should go to our OT or just try to deal with it ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. So some big red flags would be kids that are impulsive or they kind of seem like they have excessive tantrums. Just everything is setting them off. They're having a really difficult time coping uh, no matter what's going on or if they have a short attention span. Um, Those kids that have unpredictable or unsafe behaviors, like the kids that just run out into the street or are jumping off things, uh, yeah, trying to climb everything. Um, And then also the ones with poor body awareness. So Fine and gross motor skills don't seem to be age appropriate. Uh, like, like we talked about those lethargic kids that just slouch in their chairs or they're clumsy. Um, what else? Also kids who are constantly chewing on things. Like they're seeking that sensory input orally. So chewing on things um, or they might be a picky eater or just really picky about Mm -hmm. textures in general. So like clothing, um, things like that, touching things. And I mean, in the classroom, sometimes teachers see this with just the kids who have a really hard time focusing and remaining on task and they just get easily distracted. So those are some big red flags, I would say. Do you have any favorite toys or tools that or like websites you go to if you were to wanting to get some things for your classroom or your speech room um, I know I mean I like the exercise balls you can get those anywhere mm-hmm. I like beanbag chairs sometimes but then I don't know my teachers always have all these cool little gadgets and I don't know 
particularly where they you know, found I, them. I but. know you can get sensory sets on Amazon that have just like oh. kind of a grab bag of different things. Uh, one of my favorite things is called Theraputty, which is specifically made for like OTs. And it comes in different strengths, like different firmnesses that are color coded. So it's basically mm. putty. It's, bas- it's basically like silly putty, but it's a lot firmer. It's a lot harder to manipulate. So kids who need to fidget, um, that works well for them. It, it's the same concept as like a fidget toy, but it's way less distracting. <laughs> um, <laughs> what else? Um, yeah, like those seats oh, wait, we were talking about, which I can't remember the name of either, but they're those little air-filled seats that you put on the chair um yeah i don't know what they're called that's bad we're like I over know, here I'm talking not. about this i can't even think <laughs> I can't of it remember. Uh, yeah <laughs> or like those weighted there's like giant bean bags that you could put on the on kid the yeah to keep, yeah on their lap those i like those um and those also and come we have these, vests and all kinds of yeah things. we have vests and then i like those um they're, they're like little shield. Um, I don't even know what they're called. They're shield. Like they will block off areas so the kids can't see another part of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember, what, but they're like plastic. Yeah. And they shoot, they block off parts of the room so you can make like a little makeshift corner where the kid cannot see all the things that are happening in the room. Cause even just seeing the other kids doing something or they can't even work when if it's circle time and the, they, and they're singing their favorite song, they cannot even attend to the activity. Yeah. Um, I've had that happen before. So cool. Well, these were really helpful. I think it's a good place to start. And I think for myself, and I don't know if you want to chime in, but just finding some areas where I want to try to shift things in the session to make it more sensory friendly is the best place to start. And then going to your OT and it's a lot of trial and error. And so if you've been feeling like you're not doing things right, I think you should give yourself a little bit of grace on that. I don't know. What do you think, Allison? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you should always give yourself grace because especially with these kids, like, it's hard to know what's going on with them and they can't really communicate it. So it is a lot of trial and error. It is a lot of just um, working with enough sensory processing disorder kids to kind of get a better feel for it, like what's actually going on and what they need. And honestly, what works some sessions, like won't work the next. It's just, you just got to kind of roll with it. So (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So that's, it's not always the best advice, but it's because we all want answers right away on how to make our kids um, be productive in sessions. But that's what I found that when you can just catch one little thing to do differently and see if it worked or didn't work, you can put, tuck it away and use it next time. And if it didn't work, then you know not to use it again or try something new. So anyways, this, this was really helpful. I hope it was helpful to everyone else. Thanks, Allison, for coming on the podcast. I will be putting some links in the show notes to her blog about sensory disorders, movement and speech therapy, and just all the stuff we talked about so that you can go back and reference when you're in the thick of things with a student and you want to go and, um, you know, 
check it out when you're working with a student. So it really, you can really apply some of the information she shared, but thanks again, Allison. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I hope we get to see each other soon and that this coronavirus <laughs> will go away. No, it's getting real old. <laughs> All right. Well, I will uh, let you go. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Uh-huh.